My nan's got it. She only found out when she had my dad. He has haemophilia. I got tested and they said I have low factor levels as well. I had my first bleed when I was around eight. It was in my elbow. I thought I just banged it. I didn't say anything to anyone and then my nan noticed. She was like, right, we need to call up the hospital. And I went and had treatment. I think that's when my family started making me more aware of it. I just had to be more careful. I don't really get bruising that much. It's just my periods. They started when I was about 12 and I bled so much. Every two hours I would go through two heavy pads. It made me really nervous. And my mum used to have to wake me and make me change because it was just, it was just ridiculously heavy. I wasn't able to go to school sometimes because I just couldn't control it and the pain was so bad. They put me on the pill when I was about 13 or 14 to try and control it. It's helped me so much. I usually take tranexamic acid the first three days when it's heaviest and I usually have a DDAVP nasal spray, but it's not available at the moment. It does help though, those two together plus the pill. It really works. The thing I'd like to change is just the awareness that women have haemophilia as well. Hello, Hemecast listeners. It's Luke Pembroke, Hemecast producer, and happy International Women's Day. So the clip you just heard is taken from one of our Cinderella study patient stories. And to some of you listening in, this story may strongly resonate. The Cinderella study conducted by HemeNet revealed the extent of the challenges faced by women with bleeding disorders and highlighted a concerning level of unmet need regarding diagnosis, treatment and care. You can watch the full Cinderella Stories series on our YouTube channel and further information about the Cinderella study will be linked in the episode description. On International Women's Day, we figured there was no better time to draw attention to the challenges faced by women in the bleeding disorders community, but also to highlight some of the amazing work and advocacy that is being done. In this episode, Bleeding Disorder Community Legend and our host, Dr Kate Kerr, will be speaking with advocacy powerhouse Dawn Rottolini from the NHF who shares her personal story and the challenges she faced as a haemophilia mum and a person with a bleeding disorder, as well as discussing her advocacy efforts and achievements at a national and global level. Two influential women that have established themselves as leaders in the community through their dedication to improve the lives of all of those affected by bleeding disorders. So, without further ado, that's enough from me, and I will hand over to Kate. Thank you, Luke. Dawn, welcome to the podcast. Could we start by you just introducing yourself and telling us what your role and responsibilities are? You bet. So my name is Dawn Rodolini, and I am the Chief Operating Officer of the National Haemophilia Foundation. I also have the privilege of serving on the Board of Directors for the World Federation of Haemophilia, and I am the Chair of the Women and Girls with Bleeding Disorders Committee, as well as the Chair of the Haemophilia Organization Twinning Committee. So I guess most people will already know you and already know that you're passionate about women with bleeding disorders. But could you tell us what your connection to the world of bleeding disorders is? How did you get here? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for asking. I have about a 25-year history, but in reality, I have an almost 60-year history because I am the daughter of a man with hemophilia B. My dad was diagnosed 
earlier in life as a bleeder, not hemophilia A, was actually his written diagnosis. I have his early medical records because he had hemophilia B and they weren't testing for it. And they, it was when he was 17 years old and was in a car accident that they finally discovered and correctly diagnosed him with hemophilia B. So I grew up with a dad with hemophilia, but my dad was never seen by a hemophilia treatment center. And therefore he really missed out on the education and the quality of care throughout his entire life. My dad had terrible joints. He had never learned to self-infuse. And actually, I learned that I was a carrier of hemophilia when I was 17 years old in high school. I was doing a biology project and had selected inherited X-linked diseases because I was interested in learning more about hemophilia. And it was there that I learned that I was a carrier. So I wasn't really raised up until that point understanding that my bleeding that I was experiencing might be actually tied to that. And I did have bleeding. I had horrible um, oral bleeding upon, you know, any kind of dental tooth extraction, dental cleanings. I had terrible mouth bleeding, but I also had really heavy menstrual periods, but I just didn't know it wasn't normal. And so I grew up with some of those symptoms and sprained ankles. I played basketball and softball and did all kinds of sports. But when I twisted my ankle, I was out a little longer than most people, but still didn't really understand that this was associated potentially with being a carrier of hemophilia. So a couple of things there that I'm going to pick up on. We're going to come back to carrier. But So if your dad wasn't at a hemophilia treatment center, how come you're so engaged with it all? 25 years ago, when I was pregnant with my son, we lived in the state of Montana. There is no hemophilia treatment center there. So when Gino was born, they knew I was a carrier. We did do a blood cord test to see if he had hemophilia and it came back that he did. And at that time, because there was no hemophilia treatment center there, there was no chapter or patient advocacy organization there. Our journey for treatment and access to care was quite challenging and very isolating. We didn't know another family with hemophilia or another bleeding disorder. And it wasn't until he was nine months old that I found out the nearest hemophilia treatment center to us was a 10 hour drive away in Colorado. We were engaged immediately with this treatment center. And I just felt like my son with moderate hemophilia was it was such a stressful time because of course babies can't communicate with you and tell you that they're bleeding you don't know if, if they're just fussy or whether something really critical is going on and i had no one to talk to until i finally connected with the hemophilia treatment center and it was then that i found out there was a network of chapters across the country we just didn't happen to have one where i lived so i decided i would create the first chapter literally not knowing what i was doing but I really didn't want another family to, to deal with that stress. And I felt like, honestly, in the beginning, it was I was doing this for myself so I could meet another family, so I could meet other people with hemophilia and know that my son would be okay. I'm just laughing at a 10-hour journey. I think in England, people would say, oh, it's two hours to get to the treatment center. It's too far. I think we just never really quite appreciate the size of the estates until we're there. (laughs) Yeah, a 10-hour drive away. So that meant we had to treat bleeds at the local hospital. And because the treatment center was a 10-hour drive away, they had not yet really taught us how to self-infuse or how to infuse my son at home. And so we really still were reliant on the local emergency room 
for our care. And there was only one hospital in, in the city of 50,000 people. We're talking about small rural populations. And did that work? Did, were you taken seriously or was it just, oh, it's just a nosebleed or just a bruise? Or No, because he's not bleeding externally. Right. And so when we yep. knew something was happening, it was because of how he was handling himself, how he's holding himself. I was learning those signs and symptoms as a mom. But no, because they couldn't see bleeding on this baby. And what is this crazy woman talking about? Yep. So what I learned very early on and our the Colorado Hemophilia Treatment Center was incredible at giving me the tools necessary to advocate to treat my son. I would call them in advance and say, I think Gino's having a bleed. We're headed to the ER, and they would call ahead. They also provided us with a letter so that wherever we were in Montana, whether we were in our hometown or had to travel someplace else, I had a letter that I could take into the ER and say, he has hemophilia. We treat first, and then we'll do everything else you need us to do, whether it's an x-ray or all those things, but we treat first. And so that was really helpful. But that, that, Hemophilia Treatment Center would call in advance and say, listen to mom, <laughs> which was very helpful. <laughs> so how did the mom from that little tiny place in big old America get to be the dawn that you are now that is advocating for everybody everywhere? I just I really think it bore out of that really strong desire to never have anyone go through the same challenges we did in those first nine months. And as I learned, and as I met more people, I realized that we all needed to come together to learn how to advocate and that together we're so much stronger than just one person. And so while I appreciate the question, it was others lifting me up as well and coming to me, to my aid. I learned from so many leaders across the country once I became connected to other chapter leaders and eventually the National Hemophilia Foundation. And so it was through the national trainings that I would get to meet with and share stories with other people. And as I just found my passion and had no idea that I majored in political science in college, I had no idea what I was going to do. And I really just found that not only was it something that I loved to do and that I knew from my own family background how needed the education was, I kept looking at my dad. And saying, what would his life had been had he been connected to a hemophilia treatment center? What would his outcomes have been? You know, he was a guy walking around with two fused ankles and in pain the majority of his life. And ultimately with hepatitis and unfortunately, sadly, he passed away due to a failed liver transplant. What would his life had been like if he had known about chapters and then NHF? And so... As I had more and more opportunities, I leaned into saying yes, because as you know, we find advocates and we say, oh my gosh, yes, it's a new voice. It's a new story because together we are stronger. And so that's what led me step by step into the national role. So, and I think it's not just a national role. So you and I earlier today were on a webinar with people from NMOs around the world starting out on that journey. Why do you want to do that internationally? Why not just stick with America? Big enough. <laughs> uh, for the same reason. So oh. I learned, I really got more engaged. I knew about the World Federation of Hemophilia and what they did as an observer. 
But I got more engaged when I attended World Congress in Australia in 2014. And it was because I had the chance to go, the opportunity, because we were going to host the world meeting in 2016. I attended the NMO, the global NMO training. And it was while attending that event that I heard the same stories, the same experiences of what I had experienced when Gino was born. And I looked around the room and saw these incredible volunteers, which that's exactly how I started. I was full volunteer in Montana. I thought, this is the same problem everywhere. And our work collectively as a community is not done until every far reach reaches of the world have access to treatment and care. And I didn't know yet about the disparities in care in different populations, like women and girls with bleeding disorders. I didn't know that yet, but it was still about access. You should be able to get recognized access to treatment and care, and you deserve to have the best quality of life you can have when it's it when there's a treatment available. And so I it just it refired those things for me. And I, I, I was very fortunate in that my boss at the National Hemophilia Foundation, who was Val Bias, he was our CEO at the time, believed in the same things. And my current boss now, our CEO, Len Valentino, believes in the same things. And so NHF is very dedicated in partnering with any other NMOs across the world, and especially with World Federation to achieve these goals. And it's funny, Kate, after our call this morning, then I had a the International Women and Girls with Bleeding Disorders webinar, which is on International Women's Day next week. I had that rehearsal. And then I went into a Kosovo twinning program call. And it's thinking about and listening. And we just did a presentation to the doctors in Kosovo about the importance of data collection. And so everything we're doing is all about getting access to treatment and care. And I know how passionate you are about women. And I was a little bit cheeky earlier when we talked about gender and I said it's all about men with haemophilia because I knew that would upset you. So the whole just a carrier argument, I know you're very passionate about because and so am I. Nobody is just a carrier. They're women with haemophilia or people with haemophilia, just like the men are people with haemophilia. But how do we change the people's views of that? In the countries that we're working with at the moment where there is no diagnosis for haemophilia for men, yet alone women, or they can only diagnose severe, and if there's no treatment, and the women are still being ignored, even though we know that they shouldn't be being ignored, what can we do to make that better? I think that we're already starting it, because if you think about in 2018 was the first time the World Federation of Haemophilia actually had a committee addressing that disparity. It's the first time we had a committee on women and girls with bleeding disorders. That's step one. We need the larger organizations, the international organization or regional organizations. I'm thinking of the European Hemophilia Consortium is another example. When we step up and we start to use the language and we start to educate on why there are disparities, until we do that, no one really gets it. I think that's the first step. And that's where that's the stage we're still in now. Because in the United States, we know that there is a huge disparity. And people think of the U.S. I tell my dad's story because people always think, oh, in the U.S., you have everything. You've got access to treatment. That's no problem for you. 
But in reality, in the United States, it still takes between 13 and 16 years to accurately get diagnosed with a bleeding disorder if you are a woman. 13 to 16 years of bleeding, of not being treated. We also now know, because we're looking into it and there are more and more studies being done because we're bringing awareness to this, the impact of that bleeding impacts you your whole life, not just in joint disease as it does men, but fertility and reproductive health, postpartum, all kinds of areas that it affects your life as a woman and a girl. So now let's talk about a country where you still don't have access to treatment if you are a man with hemophilia. In reality, what I'd love us to do is go into those countries and not talk about gender. Talk about the bleeding issues. And talk about the fact that there are people in your country that have not been diagnosed, that have not had access to treatment, and collectively advocate, not starting with men, but starting with people. Yep. Because in the countries where we have some access for men, it's actually harder than to convince the government that, oh, by the way, there's this other population We've not even discussed yet because we've put so much focus on men with hemophilia, men and boys. And so I almost think that you have to re-educate in those situations and in those countries, which is what we've had to do in the United States as well. So I completely agree with you, but that makes it a really huge problem rather than just a very big problem. Is it realistic, do you think, to get all of those women who just have a level of 35 and maybe only bleed every month to get them diagnosed and treated because it's only 12 bleeds a year it's not so many is it right well it also depends on (laughs) who's experiencing the bleeding uh if you are if you are anyone that bleeds for 15 days out of a month that is going to be impactful no matter who it is but is it realistic that's a good question would we carve out only people with diabetes that happen to be attractive and the age of 14 No, we would never do that. (laughs) So we don't take pieces of a population with the intent of leaving another part of the population out. So while it is maybe a very large problem, let's stop talking about levels specifically and talking about phenotype. Let's talk about the bleeding they're experiencing. So if we were to go in and talk about what is happening from a bleeding standpoint, and the cost associated with untreated bleeding to the population, the cost, whether you are male or female, is still going to be really impacted if you're being hospitalized, if you are not able to work, if you are not able to go to school because of the impact of your bleeding. And so I think if we take it in bite-sized pieces like that and talk about the most severe phenotypes versus talking about gender, I think that's the way to approach it. We still will leave milds out of that equation. And I'm not happy about that. But I still think that is the way if we go severe bleeding phenotype, now we can include women, girls, boys, and men. I think that's really striking. So I was recently in the Gambia. And in the obstetric unit, they were talking about on average, they have one or two women a week bleed to death after delivering a baby. I mean, numbers that are horrifying. And they couldn't really explain why that was. And obviously, they're not all women who've got a bleeding disorder. But part of the main problem that they had was that these women came in with a hemoglobin of five or six. 
or 50 or 60, however you want to measure it. And so if, you know, they're coming in with levels like that, either because of poor diet or because they're bleeding or life is just tough and they then bleed, then they lose those women. And that's something we don't even think about in the West. It's catastrophic, really. That's very true. I will say, though, in the West, I don't think that we pay much attention to maternal mortality numbers. And I, so I think it's worse than we think it is. Uh And when I look at some of the national initiatives on the federal level in policy for the United States, the maternal health, uh, the death rate is quite high and it is quite high in certain populations. And so I do think that we still have so much work to do. And there are a lot of biases that intervene with good care. Yeah. And so the more, again, going back to discussing it, the more we talk about it, the more we educate about it, and the more we advocate for inclusion versus let's carve out what's ours, let's carve out what's best for this or that. I think inclusion is the way that we're going to be able to address this. And I do think we're making inroads, but it is it is hard to overcome. And so in the States, I know that you've got a whole kind of genetic testing program that you're trying to... Um, introduced so that everybody at least gets with haemophilia gets their genetics done so they know what their mutation is. Mm-hmm. Are you then able to use that information to barrier test, for want of a better word, women to see if they also have that gene? Or how does that work? And how who pays for it? Well, I was just going to say, so the overall program was called originally My Life, Our Future. Yeah. And it ended. Oh, no, so actually, yes. no future. <laughs> There's no future. No, what happens is exactly it. Who pays for this? Yeah. It's quite expensive. But what I will say is when you're part of trials, so there are many trials that we do have the opportunity to participate in as women. That if we participate in a trial, oftentimes the genetic testing is part of that trial. And then it's free because you're part of the trial. And that might not even be a new treatment that you're trying out. It depends. It could be a data collecting Mm -hmm. trial. But what I'll say about the My Life, Our Future program is that we were able to collect, gosh, it was more than 10,000 specimens. And those specimens are being used for research. So it actually does continue. The benefits continue. And we did include women in the second part of my life, our future. So there are carriers that have been able to be genotyped. You can, in the United States, our insurance is quite complicated because we don't have national health care. And I'll skip that part because it's, it is so complicated. However, you can get your genetic testing done if you have your insurance and your hemophilia treatment center says, We need to genetically test this person so that we can get accurate diagnosis and treatment. You can actually get it paid for. And then if you can't get it paid for, there are some programs where you can get assistance in paying for genetic testing, but they'll first go to, for example, I had my daughter. So I have a daughter. We never talk about my daughter because she's (laughs) not a carrier. And we found out she wasn't a carrier when she was about 10 years old because we decided it was very important she wanted to know, am I a carrier? Do I have hemophilia? And because I was a camp director and we have a siblings camp, so boys and girls are included or anyone with a bleeding disorder Mm -hmm. in the family, the family members, the kids are all included. And so she knew how to infuse before my son learned how to infuse. 
And she's just, she's, yeah. I want to know what he's going through. Right. And up until that point, I was still infusing my son. And so we did, she really wanted to know. And so we did go through carrier testing for her and found out she was not a carrier. But through the process, we were able to identify specifically with my son, where was the mutation? And then we're able to identify. So because of that, and because she was nearing the time when she was going to start her periods, that's why she wanted to know with the letter with the HTC, then the insurance allowed for it and covered it. And so uh, I think that's, it sounds quite different to what happens in it's the so UK different. for many reasons. But so would your daughter have at least been able to get a factor level done? Or was that not something that was done either before she yes. got a genetics? That was the first thing they did. Okay. The problem is that we know, depending, especially in puberty, we know how hormones actually do affect your factor levels. And hemophilia B in particular was something they were concerned with that they did draw her factor levels. They were in the normal range. But because of the phenotype of my dad, who had horrible bleeding, and then my son, it, it, they just decided it was better to know specifically whether she was a carrier or not so she could go into teenage yeah. years and adulthood having that information. And because we really believe that the sooner you are identified, the better. So even if she come to find out she is not a carrier, wonderful. But had she been we would have come up with a treatment plan for her periods. We would have been able to recognize what is abnormal and not abnormal. We would have been looking for the signs and symptoms of things that needed to be have intervention early on so her outcomes could have been the best they could have been. So I think this is one of the great gender disparities in haemophilia care. So if she had been a boy and if she had therefore been at risk of having proper haemophilia, she would have had her levels done at... Birth. one year two years At whatever birth. yeah and yet just because she's just a girl it's okay she can wait and I think we're doing a real disservice to girls because some of them want to know 100%. some of them get their factor level done and they've got a low level so you can say you're probably a carrier and girls like you who've got a dad with hemophilia you are definitely a carrier so we've got these three groups that yeah. we treat differently based on when we as healthcare professionals think they should have a test, can have a test, might have a test. Guess and what, I, Kate? Guess I, when my I, test is? Yeah. I'm not kidding. I'm getting tested for the first time in May. No. Yes. <laughs> so I've had bleeding my entire life. I've had massive hematomas that have taken ages to heal. I've had joint bleeds. I've had all kinds of things that when it was discussed and known, they're like, oh, yeah, we should probably test you. But it never was come in and have an appointment. Yeah. So I'm having a surgery later this year, a minor surgery. Yeah. And so I now call, they're panicking. I think I'd really like to be tested, please. And so I actually finally have a clinic appointment. I could have driven it myself earlier. And I want to call all of us out on the fact that we are terrible advocates for ourselves. Yeah. You're all doing great terrible. things for your children. So you yeah. may look at me and you're like, of course, you know what your levels are. No, no, I have never. <laughs> so I will know this year and I will go into surgery prepared because I know it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. You talked earlier about the haemophilia treatment centers and how they gave really good care to men with haemophilia. Do you think that women with other bleeding disorders and women with haemophilia and people with other bleeding disorders, not just women, get equal 
excellent care or is it different? I think the model actually is different. Thank you so much for asking that question because I think sometimes we're, we're worrying so much about access to diagnosis and then treatment and then care. We don't really define what care means. And so I'm glad you asked because I want to be specific. The male model of care, that multidisciplinary model of a hematologist, a nurse, a social worker, and a physical therapist, which is what our model goals are in the United States, includes something different. It's not without those four core pieces, but it includes an OBGYN for women and girls with bleeding disorders. It's a critical piece that's missing in many of our hemophilia treatment center models throughout the world. That whether you have OBGYNs available, it depends on the country, but midwives would be a huge partner as well. So thinking about what you need in your country and how you would address um, reproductive health and postpartum hemorrhaging, et cetera, those things that are really vital. And we talked about the fact that women are dying because they don't have access to care. Incorporating one of those things into the multidisciplinary model in the hemophilia treatment center would be critically important and really make a difference in the outcomes for women and girls with bleeding disorders. And do you think that person should be there all the time, so from when you're nine years old and you can drop in and see them, or is this just something that when you're pregnant, because that's when we're suddenly interested in you, you get to see the person because you're the vessel for the future potential child with a bleeding disorder? Yeah, I think this is beyond the uterus, to be honest <laughs> with you, but I do think that it should be early. So I do believe first and foremost, as I spoke a little bit about my daughter and wanting to make sure that we had a plan for her menstrual cycle when she started, that happens before you have your first period. Yeah. So it really goes into understanding how we will make sure that individual's outcome is the best it can be. And I also think that we are learning the impact of untreated bleeding to women and girls, if you've had untreated bleeding for 10 years leading into family planning, if that's something you're choosing to do, the impact of the untreated bleeding is severely impacting the ability for them to be pregnant, to carry a pregnancy. There's a lot of issues, but it's beyond the uterus as well. I believe that comprehensive core team can be talking about all the impacts to the body, Joint bleeding gets dismissed a lot in women and girls with bleeding disorders. That physical therapist has got to be there because there's a bias in the way we look at women and girls and how they bleed. We tend to only think about the uterus, right? Yeah. Yeah. But when we think about the uterus, we're not including an OBGYN who's an expert in the uterus. So, you know. And we think. certainly don't think about bleeding in women that are either postmenopausal or have had a hysterectomy. And if you've Absolutely. got a bleeding disorder and you're postmenopausal, you can still bleed. It's just not menstrual bleeding. Absolutely. Something to think about. And trials. We need. We really do need clinical trials to focus on some of the unanswered questions. Why in von Willebrand disease, as you get older, does your von Willebrand factor raise, yep. but your phenotype doesn't improve? You still bleed. And in fact, post-menopause, you may bleed worse than you yep. did prior to menopause, but your VWF factor now is in a normal range. 
And then how on earth do we treat those ladies? Exactly. And we don't know. We don't know. Yeah. So So we need the investment in research. We need the focus to be on these populations that are just underserved. Completely agree. And that leaves us with lots more work to do. So no retiring yet. That's right. (laughs) So I suppose that leads on very nicely to the fact that sitting behind you, which people won't be able to see because they can only hear you, is start the conversation. March being Bleeding Disorders Awareness Month. What else are you doing for that awareness? So we are heading next week, actually, we go to our capital, the nation's capital in Washington, D.C. in the United States, and we have 350 patients and advocates, family members coming to the Hill to advocate for access to treatment and care for bleeding disorders. We have more than 250 legislative appointments already scheduled, ready to go. We will bring everyone in. We'll do some education practice how you tell your story, because that's really what they want to hear. You get an appointment with your legislator. So you are the constituent. You go with a little group, so you're not by yourself. And we've been doing this for decades at NHF. And we will go talk about why access to our hemophilia treatment centers is so critically important. And we'll talk about in our groups, for example, we always talk about the boys and our sons and our, our dads or whatever. But we will be talking about women and girls with bleeding disorders as well. And so these are some, this is some of the things we do during March, which is Bleeding Disorders Awareness Month in the United States. So I think you're all very much more political than anybody here in the UK. So I don't think anybody goes knocking on the door of their member of parliament here. And maybe we should. I think we've had the uh, contaminated blood inquiry recently, which perhaps yes. has been the time when the majority of people have raised their political eyebrows and started to get engaged in politics of care. If there was one thing that you could make happen, either for yourself individually, for the West, for the world of people with bleeding disorders, what would it be? 100%. I, if I had, if it was Dawn's world and I had all the power in the world and I had one thing that I could do, people with inherited bleeding disorders no matter the bleeding disorder, not just hemophilia, not just von Willebrand disease, even the ultra rares, factor seven, et cetera, everyone would get access to diagnosis, treatment, and then care to our hemophilia treatment center model, because that's the best way we can live the best lives that we have. And I think that would be a marvellous thing to happen. And I really hope that it does. So thank you, Dawn, very much for talking to us today. Thank you so much. And I hope that everyone walks away feeling energized and willing to share your story and advocate for care, whether it's for you or someone you love. Hey, you're an impressive interviewer because I just (laughs) felt like we're having a conversation. Having a chat. Beautiful. Exactly. Great. We might get you back again. All right. You know where I live. You live in an airport, don't you? Actually, I live in an airport, but in reality, it's Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania these days. (laughs) Thank you once again, Dawn, for joining us today and being so generous in sharing your story. If you are a woman in the bleeding disorders community who has experienced challenges or barriers to treatment or care, we'd love to hear your story too. So please do connect with HemeNet through our socials or send us a line to hello at hemenet.com. Happy International Women's Day to all the women out there in the community. Nurses, physios, doctors, advocacy leaders, affected women, mums, sisters, and everybody else out there, thank you. This community is stronger due to all the work you do. So keep it up 
and make your voices be heard. I look forward to hearing them. <laughs>